Hello and welcome to Lucky Reading Podcast. Podcast. <laughs> hey, we're here in the studio with Jay and T and Jeff. And Jeff is here. Special guest Jeff, probably in the middle of the podcast. We will have a great conversation about what Jeff is reading. And, and young reading, AWP gossip, place-based reading, and also books. The Box Man by Kobo Abe. Stolen Oranges by the brilliant Max Ye. And also email and squirrel poop. Thanks for listening, readers. Let's dive into this. Jay, I've started both of the previous two podcasts with my long rant about nonsense. Why don't you start us off this week? I'll have gossip. I'll have the gossip section. Yeah. Because Jay went to the AWP conference this year in San Antonio, motherfucking Texas, where they had declared a state of emergency and that AWP conference was about to be canceled the day before, but it wasn't. And then the head person resigned because she was like, I'm not going to be responsible for all these people getting coronavirus. And uh, then there were board members of AWP who were wandering around, checking in with all of us at our booths. And I was like, I'm having a great time. Thanks for keeping this going. And she was shocked. So <laughs> you were the only person to say that whole <laughs> week. So you went to AWP. First of all, has anyone that you know gotten coronavirus from the fact that they were at AWP? From the fact that I, they yeah. were a, at AWP, I you heard me. I haven't heard anything. No one that I know of. There's some drama around the reason why San Antonio was declared a city in a state of emergency because of COVID-19. There are a lot of thoughts about it. Some people think that it was some a kind of government spin so that the mayor wouldn't look negligent in the face of a global pandemic. There was a person who was on a cruise ship or something and she lived in San Antonio and she came home but she was quarantined on the the military base, the army base that's uh, on kind of like the northern outskirts of the city and she had been cleared for coronavirus, she like wasn't showing symptoms of it and they released her and she she went to a food court Mm -hmm. to get a meal Mm -hmm. and then the military called her back into quarantine and in that time it was leaked that someone with coronavirus had been just like cast out into San Antonio and everyone like there was just like a news uprising and the mayor was like (laughs) okay I don't want to be called negligent for this thing I'm just gonna say we're in a state of emergency so that we can all you know and AWP uh, the Association of Writing Programs etc etc <laughs> nobody knows no one actually fucking knows conference <laughs> yeah uh 2020 was compromised people were like should we cancel 
should we not cancel? Last year there were around 20,000 or more people. Oof. We've like talked to so many local San Antonio businesses and local community colleges and public schools and private schools and just so, so many institutions in Texas and in San Antonio had put in a year's worth of work to, to prepare and to put funds and time and energy into creating the social conditions for a really swell gathering of people. And so most of the board on AWP was like, we're going to do this for the people. I was there at AWP representing a press that I work for. And we were supposed to be sharing a booth with three other organizations. And all three of the other organizations decided on the day before we were all supposed to arrive that they were not coming to AWP, which many other presses communities and organizations and schools decided to also do and so I had a great time it turns out that a gathering of 20 to 30,000 hungry desperate capitalist publishers and writers make for a really scary time and actually having and an inhumane time and having an undignified time and having a lot less people actually allows for really beautiful community solidarity work and like conversations to happen and new friends to be made etc so i'm a big fan of a smaller awp hopefully kansas city next year take it from me the most important awp (laughs) voice at awp um yeah you know it already feels quaint the fact that people were even considering going and canceled at the last minute. Hmm. That already feels like yesterday's response to the COVID crisis. And uh, now it would just be canceled. It, the whole thing would just be canceled. I know. I'm looking at you, Coachella. Ooh. Lightning in a bottle. Pitchfork. South by Southwest, canceled. School. <laughs> Our jobs where we <laughs> make minimum wage. Any income at all. Okay. Thank you for the hot goss. Thank you. All of this. Ooh, I have a question. Go. What books did you pick up at AWP? What a good question you ask me. (coughs) Bless you. I'm sick now. (laughs) While you're at AWP, what hot books did you collect and bring home in a cool AWP tote bag? Miracle Marks by Purvi Shah. Three excellent titles from Gaudy Boy a dope press based in New York. Turns out G, who runs the press, and I both studied with our dear friend Vijay Sashadri at Sarah Lawrence College. Really cool connection. I was excited to learn this. Sensei and Sensibility by Karen Tayamashita out of Coffeehouse Press. Were they there? Indeed. Nice. And another book out of Newfound, Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's called Sarasvati Takes Back the Alphabet. And Trans Relating House One, a novel by Pupe Misagi, an Iranian writer publishing with Coffee House Press. Good job to everyone who came to AWP and uh, blessings to all those who decided not to come. So here's this book. I'm holding it in my hand right now. It's called Stolen Oranges by Max Ye. 
out from Kaya Press. It has a longer title. Here's Here the, we go. Here's the longer title. Stolen Oranges, Letters Between Cervantes and the Emperor of China, a pseudo-fiction by Maxie. Who's Cervantes? Who is Cervantes? Who's the emperor? Miguel de Cervantes <laughs> is the author of Don Quixote, but maybe is a different Miguel de Cervantes who existed in Spain in the 16th century, who was just kind of a, a rowdy, like like between liminal class person who got his hand chopped off. Shout outs to the liminal class. What a crazy book this is. Did you want to know who the emperor was? I want you to be as didactic as possible. I'm didactically going to dive in. The emperor, you ask, is the great Ming Emperor Wanli, also known as the Ming Emperor of the Wanli years 1573 to 1620. Also known as? Zhu Yijun. Also known as Wanli. And also known as, I forget what, but it says in the book. Wild book. So many interesting uh, framing devices and so many interesting formal choices mm. throughout this pseudo-fiction that really makes the damn thing feel like, I don't know, someone named Borges or someone named Calvino would be all over this. Well, how did we find out about this book? And why did we choose to read it together, kind of? I have been kind of raving about wanting to read this book for a while now and I found out about this book because I work for <gasps> Press who published this book. Uh-oh. I know. You met Sir Maxier. Yes, this uh, my my desire and my frantic need to read this book um how you say it came to a head what does that even mean? like yeah. came to a head like it's a sex thing oh is it a sex thing i imagine it's like you're walking down the street and there's a severed head on a pole <laughs> and you're like i came to the head it's time to turn around yeah 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 um she came on my head sorry <laughs> uh uh press mm-hmm was hosting an event. There were um, a few authors there, Lisa Ko, Mimi Locke, Ed Lin, and Max Ye. I had the pleasure of meeting Max Ye and speaking to him about music in Albuquerque. I had a pleasure of learning about his friendship with a traveling taiko group from Japan who came to a mountain outside of Albuquerque where he lives many years ago and over time he became their manager. I had the pleasure of sitting next to Max while he ate a lovely looking fish. <laughs> and he's all around like a, a really a person that you can really just sit next to and feel like the world is kind of opening up around you in not an apocalyptic way in a way where you suddenly have like a glimmer of 
and magical history of the stuff that exists around you. He's a really special person. I have a lot of thoughts on his ideas, but you, Teo, really were magnetized by Aristotle. Oh, yeah. Etc. <laughs> Tell yeah. us more. Uh, oh, I just love Aristotle. <laughs> it's, not, it's really unrelated to this. That's very No, funny. so at the... Okay, you're hearing the beautiful sounds of Southern California. If you hear a plane pass by, don't freak out. Yeah, I was at the same event that was not titled Crazy Rich Imaginations. Um, and it was my first experience listening to Sir Maxier speak. So Ed Lim, different author also great, maybe we'll talk about him on this podcast later, was giving his reading from the voice of a teenage boy in the 80s trying to not fuck up in front of his parents or whatever on a, on, on a night of, of Lunar New Year. And Edlin reads his thing and, and gets off the podium and then Maxie gets up and he's like, Ed, you know, I wanted to ask you this question that uh, comes to me from Aristotle. When you're reading, who are you? <laughs> and who is the I? And what's the difference? And Edlin, who's now sitting in the audience at this point, just like gives this like big like gorilla shrug with his arms like <laughs> fuck you I'm not answering your question now you have the mic <laughs> um, so from that moment I knew that I liked this character Max Yeh um, and you know you see a lot of his pedantic but very generous sense of humor all over this strange novel that now we will talk about in depth Stolen Oranges, which uses himself as a character in the 90-page introduction to this book, which is, I think, why it's called a pseudo-fiction, right? Because we have the character of Max Ye wandering around through <clears throat> antique shops somewhere. In Mexico City, in, Mexico in City, Argentina. That's right. Yeah, you're right. Gathering antiques in the forms of written communication between Miguel de Cervantes and the emperor. And then at the beginning of the book, there's a f there's, there's like figure one, it's the only figure in the book, that purports to be one of these communications signed Miguel de Cervantes. Hard to, hard hard to, to tell. Hard to tell. Imagine swoopy whoops in a world of curly cues. So it feels like, on some levels, a Borgesian exercise, right? You've got the archivist slash librarian character who's old and charming and seemingly knows everything, um, discovering an artifact, dealing with both world histories and like Western literature and literary histories, and simultaneously rendering those histories very uh, small and personal and, 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 and human on a human scale mm -hmm. and very vast and incomprehensible such that we're spun around and disoriented. How could it be that Cervantes and the Emperor are communicating with each other? How can it be that the gaze of the East upon the West possibly potentially led to Cervantes moving to live with the emperor and be his like patron 
writer person. The expansiveness as well as the, the deeply personal um, and interpersonal. All of that can happen in a single sentence, which I think is, is the magic also of Max Ye. He just moves through grammar as, as if it is liquid. And uh, Max is also fluent, I think, in like three or four different languages. And you can tell. There's just this flexing unboundedness at the sentence level. And a sentence can last for pages and yet take you from a battle in Lepanto to the poverty of the person in battle 10 years earlier to that person's relationship to their sister, to their sister's apothecary prowess, to a grandma, like, on the seashore, and then, like, back into the, like, closet of an emperor in a distant place. And it happens so elegantly, and often with such dexterousness and humor. I'm just so, like, I'm so... I admire Maxier's use of language and like the eruption of time that he can manifest. It's really cool. I will read a passage from the book Stolen Oranges by Maxier, page 84-85. He's talking about translating the letters. Who is he? The character Maxier. Meaning in Chinese threads through the reading of characters by hints and innuendos. That is, if the characters are readable at all, for a further difficulty of Chinese results from the complexity of the graphic forms of its characters, there being 214 root forms from which the characters are made rather than the 20-some letters of Western alphabets, so that the slightest graphic difference results in a totally different meaning, as if the slant used to cross a T in English could determine a word's meaning. That was one sentence. Mifu says that calligraphers have never been able to read the characters they write, that it is all great theater. He was speaking of the difficult characters, but he might have added that because these characters are so complicated to write, ancient calligraphers invented abbreviations and standardized a way of writing called the grass script, whose flowing simplicity blurs all differences between characters so that unless one knows what one is reading, one cannot read a text in this script. Westerners are often driven to distraction by this game, but Chinese have learned to deal with linguistic fluidity, though in a general tone of lassitude which permeates their theoretical writings, by standardizing interpretation, so that all ancient texts achieve a kind of cultural understanding through commentaries that themselves become standardized so that Chinese will use whole phrases, whole passages, and sometimes whole books as if they were a single word, because these, unlike an original combination of characters, have some fixed traditional meaning. Westerners criticize this practice as plagiarism, but it is no more thievery than using words, which all come to us pre-used. What Chinese write is not the individual creation of an author, but the accumulated and standardized meanings of traditional culture. 
Only by understanding this linguistic basis of cultural conservatism can we see how, in Europe in the late re Renaissance, by creating a partible or atomistic or mechanistic universe of meaning, the invention of grammar and the dictionary destroyed traditional culture and made possible that an individual freedom of mind that is so characteristic of the West and its science, economics, and politics. Wow. What a paragraph. Wow. See how far we traveled and stayed in the same place, too. It's also this traveling that is, if not the meta commentary, then kind of the central commentary right. and central conceit, I think, of, of Max's playfulness in, in this experiment. And also, the passage that you read is a direct response to the two epigraphs of this book, which are which are from two, I don't know if they're real, probably, two Anglo-European scholars and anthropologists, linguists, who are looking at China. Yeah, questions of the gaze and who gets to look at language and who gets to look at... We both like this book a lot. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface of this good book which also is very boring. <laughs> and that's a quality of it that is also deliberate feeling. I don't feel like it's boring. Yeah, that's because you're still in the intro. The intro is incredibly kind of encyclopedic and historical because Maxier is a scholar and academic IRL um, in a way that's just like pure pleasure, I think. And then the book becomes this epistolary between the two characters which you know the pseudo fiction aspect is more fiction than pseudo um and that's when i began to feel a little bit like i needed to have actually read don quixote more than i have sorry everyone in order to really get into the book. No disrespect to all you Kikwax Day heads out there. I'm one of you just uh, in the future. Not yet. Sorry. Five stars. Five stars. Three, three and a half stars. What the fuck? Uh, <laughs> it's good. <laughs> <laughs> We're here with a mystery poet. No, not that mysterious. <laughs> undetectable writer cool. and reader. Effie Morris. <laughs> Hi. Effie. Hi. What have you been reading lately? So I've been reading like snippets of things. And so that's like what I, the theme of my uh, reading list today. Perfect. It's like snippets or things that you can't read in entirety Ooh. okay the first thing i have to talk about yeah is, yeah oh man is the complete stories of lenora carrington introduction by katherine davis this was published by dorothy projects in 2017 <laughs> um lenora carrington was a surrealist writer and painter um, I'm not going to read the rest of the back because I don't really agree with it. 
She she was actually like a very wealthy individual, um, sort of like a socialite. I think she might have been British and, you know, went to Paris, hung out with the Surrealists, felt good about it, came back, made some paintings and wrote these stories. This is something I'm reading right now and I've been reading since the summer, actually. Mm-hmm. And I haven't been able to get all the way through it because what? it's so intense for me to read like more than a couple of these stories at once. What's intense about it? These stories like take place over a number of years, mainly the late 1930s in Spain, in France, and in England. And a Mm. lot of them are unfinished um, Mm. and sort of have like notes attached to them. I've been sort of thinking about how weird it is to like have a process of only reading um, parts of books because I can't get through the whole thing. Mm. Um, and I find I do this with, like, Amina Kane. I find mm. I did this with Large Animals by Jess Arndt, actually. Mm. Um, and I especially do it with Carrington because, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so you don't finish the unfinished stories. You don't even get to the not end of the unfinished No, I finish, I finish like, a okay. story. Oh, and I should clarify that, like, these stories are only a couple pages. Like, yeah really like (laughs) that's the sort of like irony is like they are very easy to get through in terms of length but they're they just each of them pack a punch and I sort of worry about diluting the potency of the rest of the work because I'm like reading too much of these totally it would be like having 20 dreams in a row in one (laughs) night (laughs) Ah. you know yeah what's the point of short stories I think what's the point of a collection what's the point of a collection of short stories I think that uh, when I was uh, asked to be on Lucky Reading Podcast, <laughs> I was thinking about why we read and for what reasons, like, yeah. and why, uh, <laughs> what sort of texts are vehicles for other things, mm-hmm. not just like the sort of act of like reading and maybe uh, enjoying. If maybe that's like the baseline for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Why do we read? (laughs) Who does it? Yeah, so, and and I read a lot of short stories and revisit short stories just by reading one or two as an accompaniment to writing a particular story. So it's more to, like, incite a mood. What's the most alarming Lenora Carrington thing that you've read so far? Okay, okay, so this is the the most terrifying (laughs) one. This, this, This person is kind of like stuck in a home okay this is going to be very coronavirus appropriate and she's only the only person she really converses with in the story is a very old haggish woman from her balcony and this woman really like has this need for decomposing stinking flesh and specifically she's like never talked to this woman and the first thing she says um is do you happen to have any bad meat over there that you don't need she called any what i called back wondering if my ears had deceived me any stinking meat decomposed flesh meat anyway she needs this meat to feed these rabbits um and it's just disgusting oh. <laughs> like, it just really grosses me out and actually i think this is where i stopped reading in the summer because it was like I, I was reading this in Greece and feeling like fun and flirty and that was not a fun and flirty story. Totally. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes I think that I actually take issue with how sort of, 
haphazard she is with surrealist um, mm. imagery and impulses, and I think that's why I can't read too much of her at mm. once. Yeah, it reminds me of like anise seed or something. Like you can't just like down anise seed. Totally. <laughs> but it's like helpful, right? Mm. Is that sort of also why reading a whole collection feels insane? Is that there's like so many different surrealist images and keys that they all kind of blur together at a certain point? Yeah, it yeah. dilutes it. It <clears throat> dilutes it. Because I also just recently read um, Counter Narratives and I, I devoured that also. Mm. So I think, I think I'm sort of like that difference of creating worlds that we can live in longer. Mm -hmm. versus just like live in for a minute and then need to like come up for air after like exhaustion Carrington sort of exhausts the reader but doesn't think of the reader Mm. (laughs) I I feel like a lot of this is just like her Mm. own sort of it's just for her pleasure Mm -hmm. it just seems like sort of she throws things out for the hell of it Mm. and it doesn't always seem completely considered when there are like true considerations of um, viewer or reader exhaustion with a subject matter that feels a little cavalier and silly on her part. How many stars do you give it out of five? I was like so worried about this part of it. <laughs> okay, there's gonna be like a fun rating and a serious rating. Okay. Okay, the fun rating is two stars out of five. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> really living on the edge. Yeah. <laughs> really doling it out like there's no tomorrow. Okay, and my serious rating is um is um not star based. Um just everything I said before based. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't focus on the numbers. Actually, what I would recommend for you is to find it in your local bookstore to sit down and read a couple and feel it out feel if it can be helpful to you see if you can uh, digest any more of them or if you feel like fuck it I don't have time for this I want to read something else (laughs) the other thing that I was reading and this is like another this is like a very different sort of form of um, reading and engagement is um, I transcribe a lot of talks Mm. on Uh, YouTube talks that aren't available in text form somewhere else and my most recent one I was doing was Fred Moten's Afterlives, The Persistence of Performance Mm. uh, which was given at MoMA on September 25th 2015 Um, and I picked this particular transcription because it's Fred Moten and because Fred Moten is so dense um, mm-hmm. and I, I really like the process of transcription it feels sort of like I'm like I'm like how can I like uh, honor the integrity of the artist and chip wow. away like the sort of like crappy veneer of YouTube and make this into a text that I can like revisit I don't know yeah. I don't know if that's like <laughs> sustainable as a metaphor but mm-hmm. so I sort of like transcribe these texts and I'm not really paying attention to like what the speaker is saying beyond mm-hmm. the sort of like granular so I sort of have this like primary interaction with it where I'm like stringing maybe a couple words mm-hmm. together that I find like poetic and interesting but it's more for sort of like um 
That's poop. Someone just pooped That's on not it. poop. That's poop. How do you know? That's definitely poop. Oh, yeah, That's it is. That's a squirrel poop. Did That's you just poop. touch it? Yeah. That's how you get coronavirus. <laughs> coronavirus. You heard it here. Famously spread through squirrel poop, actually. <laughs> Look it up. Where is that guy? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, anyway. Like right anyway. Um, what was it? Oh, yeah. I'm trying to focus on the fidelity of the talks that are being given. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then so recently I've been going back and like rereading my transcriptions. Mm. And like so I'm also interested in that sort of form of reading where it's like these snippets of mm. text that aren't, I don't know, supposed to be in existence, but now they are for my reading pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Different kinds of snippets. Yeah. What does it feel like when you return as a reader to these granular elements that you were conserving um that's i mean i i don't i'm like now reading them in sentences so that's like really weird and i'm like i actually don't know where the punctuation is supposed <laughs> to go or like where the paragraphs start and stop Interesting. like extensively so mm -hmm. um yeah i become hyper aware of like meaning and sentence making in this like way that um plays with sort of like a memory of that mm. original transcription and experience that um Effie, I notice you're holding another book over there. What's oh, that? Oh, but I didn't really want to talk about oh, it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just a little teaser. Huh? <laughs> I mean, we all know this book. Yeah, don't even say it out loud. Yeah, I'm not even Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> it's just a Bible. <laughs> <laughs> That's another thing I like to read in a little short verse. Yeah. I remember my one of my spring breaks in my undergrad years. I went to Puerto Rico with my dad and my partner at the time and had to read Great Expectations for a class. Ew. <laughs> which is like, actually like a dark fucking book. Like people don't talk enough about how fucking terrifying and like everything is just smeared in like coal and oil and stuff. And I was sitting on the beach in the Caribbean reading it. <laughs> That's my wow. story. I just thought I would share. Because <laughs> cool. well, um, you were in Greece with that. Oh, Kind of a similar yeah. story. Whoa. Oh, wow. I, yeah. place, place to me is so important. Yeah, that's why I, I told things. this story. Cool. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, I actually... See, oh, the only time I read Great Expectations was like... I wasn't old enough to drive yet. And my mom and I were on a road trip somewhere. And she like very quickly got tired of driving yeah. and like angry at my age <laughs> and so like in an effort to like be a good daughter and pacify her I read her great expectations wow. for like hours on end until like I lost my voice finally she was just like I don't want you to read that to me anymore <laughs> it's too depressing um, and like she had this like really intense reaction and so we listened to music and that was the rest of the road trip whoa maybe nobody's read great expectations well hmm. when did you read great expectations jay never have i ever oh i thought you Good. did i thought you read that as like Don't a very young need person. to did you read no you read david, I read copperfield, david copperfield when you were like 10 years old or something tale of two cities oh i can't believe we're talking when about you were a Dickens. young lad right when i was a young lad <laughs> how old were you when you read moby dick Oh my god. I was like eight. <laughs> Ew, what? <laughs> I know. That's crazy. I really liked whales. Oh, nice. And that's what, I was looking at a lot yeah. of whale literatures. Yeah. And 
I sat next to my giant stuffed orca whale, which I still have, and I read Moby Dick. Oh, that's nice. And it was incredible. I was too young to understand anything that was happening, but it was cool. What did y'all read at too young of an age? Well, my dad read us Ivanhoe, which he told us was a very advanced thing for him to be reading to us, which, like, didn't really set us up for like understanding it it set us up for like pretending we understood it mm. in old in like order to prove competency to our father right but like in a really fun way like it wasn't pressure we were just like oh yes like let's do you think that's like the first time you were ever pretentious <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah consciously so yeah yeah it wasn't even amazing. and it was like it was like this really cute budding form of pretension where like we'd be like yes father we'd love to listen to you read us ivanhoe again tonight and like two minutes in i'd be so bored because i had no idea what was going on so there was that and then when i was 11 i tried reading the unbearable lightness of being only because i liked the cover mm-hmm. which had a bowler hat floating above a neck mm-hmm. and i was like i love magritte this must be like looking at a magritte painting um, in literature form and it was not and I didn't understand it and I soon put it down after that but yeah, read it a couple years later yeah I read pretty age appropriate stuff until I, mean, I was like <laughs> until I was like 12 which is the year that I read like everything that Orwell wrote and I think yeah probably the year that I wrote like or read not wrote all of the classic dystopian fiction books like if you name it i probably read it in the year 2004 Uh right i mean bush was just re-elected that was the time that was the oh man that was the time um and then after that i don't know there was no looking back so orwell was your gateway to attention (laughs) yeah yeah, I read Galapagos when I was 13, and Vonnegut was, like, my Whoa. gateway. Oh, yeah. Which was, like, very much a time. But I was in Italy during the summer, and, like, it's when, like, being sexy was, like, a new thing coming into mm. the imagination. Yeah. And so, like, I felt very, like... Like, I'd lay on my back in my Italian bedroom and, like, think about what sexy was, like, while I read Galapagos. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and also, like, thought I knew everything about the world at that point. Effie, thank you very much for being on this plague edition of Lucky Reading Podcast. Bye. Bye. Okay, okay, we're done. Who is watering their lawn right now? Now, yeah, what? It's been raining for the past five days. Maybe they're rinsing off their, like... Next thing we're talking about is what? Let's talk about The Box Man by Kobo Abe. Being read on my beautiful Barnes & Noble nook, which has started having this problem where I turn it off, and then when I turn it on again, it's on a different page. It doesn't save my place anymore. Oh, no. (laughs) I got this nook refurbished used from barnesandnoble.com. So there you go. Um, Thank you to the LA library system for letting me rent a copy ebook version of Kobo Abe's The Box Man, written in the 70s. Don't have it in front of me. Can't give the specs, but 
I was recommended by a good friend, Corley Miller, who will probably be on this podcast eventually, to read some Kobo Abe, who is apparently a big influence on Jesse Ball, who you'll you'll recall from episode two. Thanks for listening. I had a lot to say about the book that Jesse Ball wrote. And so this is Jesse Ball's Jesse Ball, Kobo Abe. And I have a lot of thoughts. I think in the future, I'm going to make a visual textual map called Kafka and Other Kafkas that is like a spider web family tree lineage thing between Kafka and all the other Kafkas, right? So Kobo Abe will be there, Jesse Ball, Krasna Horkai, who wrote Metropoly? I don't know. Uh, What's his name? I don't remember. It's in the car. It starts with a B. (laughs) Great fucking book, Metropoly. Look it up. And all the other Kafkas out there. Maybe Kafka's like a Dalai Lama kind of thing, you know? You You should just call them by their names, which is Kafka. Anyway, That's what people do. Yeah. No, they say it's Kafka-esque. They do say They call the wrong things Kafka-esque, though. They think something's Kafka-esque when it's just upsetting or boring and Ooh. bureaucratic. Or Hot both, take. Both at the same time. Yeah. When in fact Kafka-esque, to me, is I guess a style of viewing social interactions and the ways that isolate people are made to interact with one another that accentuates the arbitrariness of those interactions Mm. in the ways, Mm. obviously in the ways that people are deeply controlled by systems that are completely invisible to Mm. them and the fact that nobody has a full picture on the systems. Mm. And, you know, in Kafka, you're always dealing with like the middleman boss mm-hmm. like there's the kafka parable of the person at the doorway yeah you know that one no guys trying to get to the to the center of the city or whatever guys mm-hmm. trying to see the king it's kafka it's, you know just use your imagination okay he gets to the first doorway and there's a guard at okay. the door the point is that the guy gets past the first guard, and the first guard is terrified of the second guard, and that's the whole thing. Yeah. But there are more guards. You go down, you, get, you enter the first gate, there's always a second gate, there's always another guard, but you never actually get to the root of the power, mm-hmm. or like the person in charge of all of the guards, or the person who built the gate system, or anything like that. Maybe like the, it's just fear. Well, it's fear, but it's also like the grand architecture of the thing causing you fear is inscrutable Mm -hmm. or it's so large that you could never see it all at once. And Mm -hmm. the fact that nobody does have that like enormous power, Mm -hmm. like there's no God in the system, obviously, um, or no like paternal king who knows everything that's going on like that's the root of like a lot of Kafka's anxiety and so you have interactions between people who exist within these power structures that highlights and accentuates the fact that they're all victims on some level to these systems Mm -hmm. and like the way they treat each other is what's interesting right sorry for the rant
Kobo Abe is not Kafka, but if we were doing the Dalai Lama thing, we could say that he was. And The Box Man is a book following a box man. What is a box man? I'm glad that you asked. Um, the first half of this book is basically concerned with that very question. What is a box man? Um, a box man is someone who lives in a box, usually a pretty big box, <laughs> like a big like fridge, like a box that would hold a refrigerator or something, or a couch maybe. The interesting thing about a box man is that people choose to become box men. And so we have this this Isang character who once lived in an apartment and um, had a box man living outside his window and shot the box man with an air rifle, which is like, what's an air rifle? A BB gun? I don't know. And was so freaked out by that experience that one day he got a new fridge and a box came with obviously the fridge came in a box and he put the box on and started watching tv and became a box man and never looked back the interesting thing about what i just said is that that story is told by the i saying protagonist as though it happened to someone else when in fact it's definitely what happened to him and he might have actually in that story not have been the guy with the bb gun but the box man outside his window so this is a book very invested in smushing identities and having the kind of rashomon viewing and reviewing of situations from multiple angles and then you realize that the person speaking was probably someone else or occasionally both people in an interaction. So right now where I'm at in the book is that it's a box man in a room talking to someone in his own box who he keeps calling the fake box man, who is also a doctor who like injected him with something, who also maybe bought his box off of him. Oh my god. But he still has his box. <laughs> Whoa. Also throughout this book is a very <laughs> 1970s thread of just blatant misogyny. Also in this room with this fake box man is just a naked woman. Oh my god. <laughs> Who knows why. But she's very naked and the, the protagonist very much is thinking about how hot she is. From within the box. From within the box. He's also thinking about, like, cutting holes in the box for his pee-pee to have sex with. Like, you know, so, like, imagine a box. How can he see the naked woman? Great question. Um, so every box man makes a kind of, like... T like book shaped aperture in their box that they then cover with like a vinyl like translucent vinyl sheet but it's all about for this box man it's all about tilting the box so that the sheet kind of spills over a little bit and there's a little crack in the aperture but only large enough for an eye a single eyeball and so when you're looking at the box from without all you see is this eye staring out at you from this box 
And, <laughs> and the quote is something like, I would like to see the man who could greet this look with composure or something like this. It's like that's the box man's first and only defense against the world is that this look that you're capable of giving when you're just an eye staring out of a box is so horrifying that people leave you alone. So, you know, it's like a lot going on with regards to like homelessness in Japan. A lot of the book is also invested in obviously visibility but also invisibility one of the smushy stories that the protagonist gives is about someone with a camera who realizes that they've been taking photos of box men out in the street but didn't realize while they were out in the street only Ugh. saw the box men in the photos and then realized like you know that they were surrounded by box men all the time and that's sort of like at the center of the book it's like you're always surrounded by these sort of vagrant uh homeless people like at the very very edges of society who are capable of seeing you and you're capable of seeing them but it's so upsetting that you choose not to very kafka-esque you could say what do you think about the qualities mm -hmm. of of gaze and aperture as a reader who who gets to see what like what position are you in as a reader and then also what about the internal varieties of of looking and looking through lenses looking through vinyl yeah etc etc so the book's framing de this novel's framing device is that it's a series of diary entries mm. um with sort of actually mixed media collage elements like every 20 pages or so there'll be a photo mm. with like a very opaque caption under it like kind of prose poemy caption under it um mm. but it's it's this box man's box man manual kind of like how to be a successful box man Whoa. but also like littered with anecdotes and throughout all this there's the story of this box man maybe agreeing to sell his box to this hot nurse and watching the hot nurse be naked and lascivious around another box man and then him him being in that room so yeah i mean just like a book with a bazillion different frames you, the reader, are always reading this diary that's being written and rewritten. Like, you have mm. marginalia as well, mm. um, attenuating the things that have already been written. But that's all taking place inside a box, right? right? The box man is in the box writing this stuff and looking out his peephole thing. But it's often he's still outside or talking about somebody who's outside but inside a box but looking inside a room mm -hmm. so you have the double aperture of the box window and then the building window mm -hmm. so that's like multiple kinds of invisibility also it's very confusing you know it's a book where you're really never sure if you're talking about here and now or if you're telling a story and then the story usually catches up with here and now mm. and it's just a different way of explaining what's happening currently mm. um but all of that confusion 
if you want to make a stretch, maybe feels like looking through kind of the vinyl sheeting of this sort of aperture window looking Mm. out of a box and never really being clear on what you're looking at Mm. um and also never being clear about who has the power right like the box man is someone who chooses to be like at the very fringes of society but also is somebody obviously without a ton of power but who gets to see the world for what it really is or like gets to see the world from the perspective of somebody who gets to be invisible and who wants to be invisible so all of those questions of power are are very complicated i think (laughs) i think that's all i got that's great do you have more no okay i mean i was reading prismatic ecology oh yeah i have been read multiple essays within this collection of essays and now i am i am reading the intro and it's been a very exciting time for my list of words I don't know (laughs) it's been an explosion of words I don't know so can you give us some of the words indeed mise-en-scene wait mise-en-scene what is it I I thought I knew but thinking about it I don't know well, I don't know either. Oh, you don't have <laughs> definitions, just the word. I just the word. Okay, keep going. Concatenate. Concatenate, I do know. Sorry, this isn't about me. Go on. <gasps> yeah, this isn't a knowledge test of okay, what you okay. know. Okay, can we start over? I'm yeah. really sorry. It's okay. <laughs> Mise-en-scene. Mm. Concatenate. Mm-hmm. Avulsion, spelled A-V-U-L-S-I-O-N. Viridesce. Structurating. <laughs> no. Antimony. Excrescence. Echo cosmopolitan. Echo cosmo, but cosmo e- with a K. Echo cosmopolitan. E C O K A K O S M O P O L I T A N. I'll have two echo cosmopolitans, please. I'll take that with rocks. a gecko on the side. <laughs> Hilarious. What is Prismatic Ecologies, please? Prismatic Ecology... Well, it's Prismatic Ecology. Um, My bad. I also thought that it was plural ecologies in all of my note-taking, and then I looked at the book and found out, indeed, no. It's a collection of essays from scholars and thinkers, scientists, artists, that are taking to task green as the central metaphor and color and uh, ideological stance of climate justice and climate change. So this editor, Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, a medieval scholar, a scholar of like medieval English, is really taking to task the historical and ideological use of the word green and like what it what it does and what it excludes when we're thinking about the humanities and the sciences as they're all interconnected i think it's really cool that he's a medievalist anyway so what this book is is a series of essays that take different parts of the of the prism as the starting points for thinking about or reorienting our look at ecology for example 
instead of something that's like like very virile and hyper masculine like the color green or the bright green that is often used in the, I don't know, like Greenpeace. There are colors such as uh, gray, maroon, I think also red, which is my favorite essay. It is talking about the colonization of large and small animals in our diets and slaughterhouses and things like this. There's also ultraviolet. I think Timothy Morton's is like x-ray or something. <laughs> x-ray. Yeah, so it's it's looking at all possibilities of prism and ways in which we can interact and engage with our daily material existence. It's really a cool lens of eco-criticism if that's something you're interested in. Do you think that the green lens is a romantic heteropatriarchal project? That is what Jeffrey Jerome Cohen is arguing. Mm -hmm. I agree. Nice. It's really mercantilist and modern and neoliberal and capital R romantic. Green, green as an ideology also... Or at least the way that the editor in the introduction talks about green it is one that also invites tension and the problematizing of green, I think, is really interested in, in locating the imperialist moves in conservationist and preservationist work that has ignored the impact of pre-Anglo people mm -hmm. um, on this planet and also has ignored just the the impact of humans in general on the planet. There's there's this idea in preservation and conservation that like you're looking at you're looking at restoring a landscape to its original shape and we don't know what that original shape is. To say an original shape is deeply speculative. It's really capital R romantic in which you're erasing a whole hosts of history from existence. Yeah, I don't know. It's really it's really complicated. I think green green also you can think of green as like the green agricultural revolution that started around Earth Day in the 70s that just like wiped out so many historical practices of agriculture and seed banking and so many things in like the global south. Well, Jay, we we solved coronavirus. Put UV rays on stuff. <laughs> yeah. And look through a final film in a box. And talk to, to your, your friends. friends. Uh, episode three is, is over. over. Thank you to Jeff slash Effie Morris for joining us as our guest artist of reading. In times of stress and peril, you might find comfort in... Reading, reading a, a book. book.
Thanks for joining us, JNT, as we vamp about books, articles, soap bottles, street signs, and other media on Lucky, Lucky Reading Podcast. Podcast. The music you heard in this soap is Letter to Bernadette, a jammy demo by the combined forces of T. Rivera Dundas, M. Whiteman, and JFK Rondala. <laughs> this uh, is like the special, you know, cabin fever mania <laughs> edition of this podcast. We can say whatever we want. We really can.